Welcome to a new episode of the Digital Adoption Show, your premier podcast for groundbreaking insights and transformative strategies in today's evolving learning landscape. I'm your host, Mayank Karoda, Customer Success Manager at WhatFix. Today, we are diving into navigating the future of L&D, maximizing ROI, and embracing disruptive trends in 2024. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Rob Lauber, a luminary in the world of learning and development. Rob is the founder of Excelo Global, where he focuses on helping learning teams drive more business value. Rob has also played a pivotal role in shaping learning strategies for a variety of sectors. His background is rich with over 30 years in the L&D space, marked by his tenure at renowned companies like McDonald's and Yum! Brands, and also his advisory role at various organizations. His expertise lies in driving functional transformation leveraging learning technologies and implementing innovative L&D strategies that deliver real business value. Additionally, Rob has served as the chair of board of directors for the Association for Talent Development, further highlighting his commitment to advancing the field of L&D. Rob's approach to L&D is both strategic and hands-on, blending his deep industry knowledge with practical solutions. He is passionate about enhancing the organizational learning and promoting the skill development and preparing businesses to succeed in a rapidly changing world. We are excited to delve into his insights and experiences, uncovering the strategies and philosophies that have made him a key figure in transforming the L&D landscape. Welcome to our podcast, Rob. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me today. Lovely, lovely to uh, see you, Rob. Before, before we dive into our main discussion, let's kick off this new episode with our segment, The Digital Pulse. This is where we try to connect the connect dots between passion and profession, uncovering how individual journeys shape visionary leadership. So Rob, is there a passion or passion or activity outside of work that particularly close to your heart? Well, I have three daughters, so that's been a passion or an activity that I've spent a lot of time on over the last 20 plus years. But they're they're aging up now and becoming much more independent, which is good. I spent a lot of time with them in sport, specifically hockey, field hockey in the U.S., they would call it, but hockey in general, which you know many of the audience is very familiar with. And so that's sort of been my passion and activity, my family as well. My secondary one is I do some work around affordable housing. So I, I have some investments where with a few friends of mine, partners of mine, where we invest in building homes and building yeah building homes basically that people can afford to live in and we do that in uh, various places throughout the United States right now wow that that is uh, that is pretty great uh, especially how uh, multifaceted your personality is how you've <laughs> uh, you know been uh, working you know on the professional front as well as you know uh, what you're doing uh, for the betterment of the community as well so thank you thank you for that insight now uh, we're going to move to a short rapid fire round we are calling it the triple strike, where we ask our guests three quirky questions and expect a fun answer to get a deeper glimpse into their minds. Are you ready to be triple strike, Rob? Yeah, sure. I can't wait to see what these questions are. So let's go. <laughs> so here's your first one. If a biography was written on your life, what do you think would be the title of the book? That's a really good question. I don't know. I always think about it as something along the lines of, uh, you know, right where he was supposed to be or in the right place at the right time, I think would be sort of the theme sort of 
someone someone much more clever than me could make a title out of that. But I think it would be something something like that. Nice. And, you know, that just shows me how humble you are, Rob. Okay, so here's your next question. So this is a funny one. If animals could participate in L&D programs, which animal do you think would be the most enthusiastic learner and why? Most enthusiastic learner would probably be the biggest trick. So... I don't know. I've often thought I, I dabbled a little bit in horse racing a few years ago, and I thought about horses and their relationship to sort of human performance, you know, the parallels. Some days the horses just don't feel like running and some days they, you know, want to want to be out in front. So so I thought about that, but I don't know about enthusiasm there. So I think that would be probably more difficult to measure. So enthusiasm piece always makes me think more along the lines of like dolphins and porpoises who tend to have sort of, I guess, a bigger intellect in the animal world, yeah. tend to be excellent learners and, uh, you know, always seem to demonstrate some level of enthusiasm. So I'd probably go to that part. Very good. And I've heard dolphins are the most intelligent mammals in the world. So I could be mistaken with... Probably, yeah, some days definitely smarter than humans. So that's for sure. Right. And here's here's the next question. I don't know how many languages do you speak, Rob? And the real question... Oh, one? Okay. But if, one, you, yeah. if you could speak any language speak, uh, fluently, which language would you choose? And what's the first thing you'll do with your new scale? That's a good question. You know, I think for practical purposes, it would probably be Spanish. So my kids speak Spanish pretty fluently because they've learned it from a young age. And so sometimes they have conversations that I'm not a part of. So it would be handy to know what they're talking about when they don't want me to hear it. So I think that's interesting, but also tied to some of the work I do with affordable housing is interact a lot with the Hispanic community where, you know, Spanish speaking community where the builders or even the recipients of the housing don't speak any English. So it would be great to be able to speak Spanish more fluently or fluently for sure. If you could wave a wand over me, it'd be great. And I'm waiting for that app or somebody probably will tell me that AI can solve that. But, you know, I think that would help me connect to those people better and, and really understand, you know, them at a personal level, which is always interesting for them. Great. And, uh, you know, my weird resolution was to learn French so that whenever I visit Paris, you know, I'm able to talk to people in French. But yeah, long way to go for sure. Hello. And I'm probably missing that right now. But but anyway, moving on to, to our next segment. But I do want to say that uh, those are truly uh, extraordinary answers and uh, we truly love them. Now that you're comfortable and settled in, let's dive into a, a little bit serious kind of conversation here. Sure. And, and you know, this is something our listeners have been anticipating for a while. So let me, you know, start with the first one. So Rob, could you share with us how your journey in L&D began and what motivated you to pursue this particular path? Yeah, interesting. My journey began, I don't know, it depends on how far you want to go back. But I think that my journey began from a work perspective early in my career where I was doing a particular job and uh, at the first company I ever worked for, which was Dun & Bradstreet, other than sort of early years, part-time jobs. But my first full-time job was with a company called Dun & Bradstreet and it was about collecting business information. And I got pretty good at it and a, a couple of particular skills I got good at. For example, uh, spotting business fraud, interestingly, I got very good at. And so, so I got asked to teach other people how to do that and sort of uh, impart what I see and what I know to other people. And I started doing some workshops locally and then was asked to kind of join a national training team at a national level, move to where the location, the national location was and begin teaching classes 
for, I did that for about three years or so. And then, so that was sort of my first foray into learning and development. And I wouldn't say that it unlocked my passion at that point. I liked it a lot. It was kind of fun. I got to meet three or 4,000 people, new people every year that I'd never met before. I always enjoy that. And, but going way back, 1993, our uh, president of our business came to us and said, uh, we're not going to do this anymore from a classroom perspective. It's too expensive. People are turning over. The turnover's too high. A lot of the same conversation you probably have today, actually. And um, he said, but I'm not going to let you guys go. I want you to come up and propose a new program to me. And you have about 120 days to propose a new program to me. And so that, that I would say, is probably the pivotal moment that sort of unlocked my passion because it opened my mind to the possibilities of how we could do things differently. I started learning some basic principles of instructional design and adult learning and some of those theories and practices and uh, getting exposed to those for the first time. And it really unlocked a lot of passion for me. And I think it was that that was sort of the moment that I knew that this was sort of the profession that I wanted to pursue, regardless of the company that I worked in for the rest of my career. So I'd say that's how, you know, how it started, you know, less intentional, maybe at first, more accident yeah. probably, but you know, there was a good, that's sort of the theme with the biography of my book, but I think it unlocked the passion I would say in me that, that I was looking for, frankly, because I was pretty young at the time and, and really helped set the trajectory for the rest of my career. Very nice. And you know, it happens, right? When sometimes you just need that one push and one moment and it changes everything. So yeah, probably if that wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't be here. So I hate and- to think where I'd be. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, since you've had such a diverse career, right, from your roles as a chief learning officer at McDonald's and Yum Brands to founding your own venture, XLO Global, how your experiences have been different and what are some of the key uh, lessons you've learned that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, you know, each role that I've had has been different challenge, I'd say, organizationally. So I can think about, you know, after Dun & Bradstreet, I worked in a con- in consulting, which is now PwC. And, you know, for me personally, I was in an, I was working with tax associates in the U.S. and I knew nothing about taxes other than paying them, right? And so levels of discomfort have always been sort of uh, a hallmark of my experiences where I go in and there's a particular problem to solve. I don't necessarily have the answer, but I can leverage the organization to figure it out. I think, you know, so from a lesson perspective, I would say like that is sort of always be open to the challenge. You know, when I was looking at at roles in different organizations, people were typically looking at me because they didn't know the answer to the problem. They knew what the problem was, but they weren't really sure how to solve it. And so they were looking for someone who could come in and be curious enough and experienced enough to kind of figure out the direction that we should go. And so, I, I you know, I, th- I think that's thematic with my, at least my last three roles in organizations, the last three companies I worked in, I was really just help us figure this out and go. So for me, um, it's really about being open to that challenge, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Because you don't necessarily know the answer, but being confident at the same time that you can figure it out, right? With the help of others, for sure. But that, you know, that you can figure out the best path or a better path, maybe to go than the current status quo. So I think that's one. I think the other one is really, you know, some of the lessons I've learned is really sort of my strategies and approaches have really changed based on the 
based on the situation with the business. So for example, centralizing or decentralizing learning and development or federated models is always a fabulous conversation in L&D that, you know, has been debated for the entire 34 years now that I've been in learning and development and probably won't, probably will another 30. And, you know, for me, one of the lessons I learned is that the answer to that question is always, it depends and it depends on what's happening in the rest of that organization. So the right answer on that is always contextual with what's happening in your business at any given time. So at Yum Brands, my job was to really decentralize the organization and get talent in the right places around the world to be able to run it interdependently, but not, you know, centralized. And then at McDonald's, my early work was really about bringing all the disparate communities of learning around the world together into a not more centralized, but I'd say more community-based approach where people are actually talking to each other and know who each other are. So I think, you know, recognizing where companies are and what will actually work inside that company based on where it's trying to go matters. I'd say those are sort of two, sort of two lessons I would take. There's probably about 50 others, but that would be too. I'm sure we'll hit on a few more as we go here. Uh, and well, you've spent 30, 30, over 30 years in the L&D space, I'm sure. There's a yeah. lot more learning. You learn a, you, yeah, you learn a lot. You make a lot of mistakes and you definitely learn from them as well as you go. Absolutely. And I, I also believe in the same thing that true growth happens when you get out of your uh, comfort zone and actually believe yourself that you'll be able to figure it out. So that's great. So now coming to and talking about the topic of L&D specifically, with 2024 being termed as the great disruption for L&D, what key disruptions do you see happening around you and how do you think they will, you know, they will impact the L&D space? Yeah, I think that the great disruption for L&D, that's interesting. So I think there's been many disruptions in L&D across the last 25 30 years, probably since the internet or since computer, you know, personal computing began. So I think that this is just another disruption point. I don't know that it's the greatest disruption point, but it's another disruption point that will force the L&D functions to begin to think differently about how they get things done. I think that in a good way, you know, some of the disruptions that are out there are going to force organizations to think more about how people learn and how people can learn versus the product of training that they might create. And I think that's a good thing that could happen. And so I think that's one thing that will impact. I think the other thing that's going to impact is that, and there has been for a while, but I think this year will really accentuate, move towards enablement. So if you take AI, which of course you can't help but talk about in any webcast these days, so we won't let anybody down that way. You know, uh, prompt engineering is the new skill, right? And so if you think about teaching people how to prompt engineer, that's really about teaching people how to, you know, enabling people to use tools. Yeah. And so, and, and, you know, and by the way, enabling people to learn in those tools, not through anything that you necessarily created. So yeah. I think that that's, that's a, a good example of where sort of L&D organizations are going to be forced to move towards enablement more than creation, you know, and I, and I think that that is the direction that L&D is going to be moving over the next 10 years or so. It'll be less about creating training programs, not that those will go away, but I think it'll, the, the emphasis will be less and the emphasis will increase more on how do you unlock my unk's ability to learn, right? Yeah. And what kind of tools can you put in his hands that make sure that he can perform at the highest level as any high performer can? And so how do you unlock that, enable that, and make sure that it's possible? 
more than how do I teach them something to do. And, you know, with our world where people are watching the short videos, we have this, as they call, instant gratification, right? We want something, we want to know something, and we want it now. Because, you know, earlier sure. we used to pull up Encyclopedia, but today we have Google in our phone, right? So, and with the advent of chat GPT and whatnot, it's available if, if you really want access to it. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's been coming on, right? If you think about like micro learning's been a conversation for four or five years. Exactly. Again, not really a new idea, right? People just started paying attention to the fact that no one's watching their 30-minute videos, right? And so I need to now do 10 three-minute videos instead of one 30-minute video, right? And learners want the 15 seconds in that 30-minute video that matters to them to solve a particular problem. So I think that this whole idea is not really something new, right? It's just the next generation of really unlocking what people want, and that is you can't possibly remember everything that you need to do to do a job because some things happen infrequently. So how do you then retrieve the answer with the least amount of effort possible, right, to solve a particular problem and keep moving forward? That's what people want. And I think tools like ChatGPT potentially, I wouldn't say do it yet, but I'd say potentially open the door to a realm of possibilities where that becomes much simpler. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, because you've been a strategic advisor to large organizations like and live in advisory, Cognita, and many more, what, what challenges did these organizations face and how were you able to help them in your experience? Yeah, I think talking about sort of what I do, I think one of the big challenges in the supplier community right now is getting people's time, right? So, <laughs> so when there's disruption... There's, I'm trying to do my job and I'm, there's a lot of noise in the system at the same time. So, so my ability as a chief learning officer to pay attention to what fix calling me out of the blue is very small, right? And so that, that becomes very challenging to many, particularly startup and early stage companies that don't have big brands, those, those kind of things. So what I've been trying to do is help them understand what's going on in the world of the chief learning officer. Or the, or the potential buyer that they're trying to sell to. So what is an instructional designer's life like? What are they feeling, seeing, thinking right now? What's the corporate environment like? What's the budget cycles look? How do decisions get made? Those kind of things. So I spend much of my advisory time working with organizations around understanding those pieces which helps them in turn sort of hone their sales deck, think about their marketing approaches, figure out the right places to be where they have the best chance of capturing someone's attention. Those types of pieces have really been where I've been advising a lot of these different companies. Got it. And speaking of budgets, one of the biggest challenges in L&D is justifying the ROI on these investments, right? So in your experience, how do you approach this to show tangible or quantifiable metrics or results? Yeah, two things I'd say. Like, I actually pay a, a very little attention to ROI, which sounds kind of heretic to people that are might be listening to this because I don't, I I care about ROI, but I don't pay a lot of attention to like the rigor of ROI because sometimes doing the ROI costs more than the actual ROI of whatever it is <laughs> that you did. So I think there's a couple things that I do up front, which aren't inconsistent with people that spend their time around ROI a lot, uh, focus on. One of them is I focus a lot on defining success measures up front. Before I create anything, before I go off and sort of build something or whatever it might be, I 
work pretty hard with my clients to really understand what's the problem that we're trying to solve, right? And and most importantly, what does success actually look like? And yeah. sometimes that's numerically, you know, so it means sales goes up by 5%. Sometimes it's intangible, like something I want people to feel or something, you know, words I want to hear people saying or behaviors I want to see in people. Like a lot of leadership development is really about behaviors that I want to see more than sort of metrics I expect to improve, right? That's sort of the next, you know, tangentially over on that. So getting really clear with with stakeholders up front about what success looks like and whether data to prove that even exists um, is super important. Because I think if you know what your stakeholder will, how your stakeholder will view what you do as success before you've built it, then you can build to make sure that it shows that success. Or or you're going to make choices around things that you can or can't do that are going to show that success. Right. So so I've had you know, I've had situations where people have laid out issues for me and we talk about what how do we measure success. And when I've sat there and said, gosh, this is probably, you know, in my head, this is probably going to be pretty hard to prove. And instead I propose that we experiment. So let's run a test before we make the huge investment, right? Let's pilot in a particular place or geography or, you know, one or two locations and see what the feedback, the reaction and the results might be. And does it appear that we're going to have a high probability of getting the success measures that we've talked about, right? Because sometimes it's not possible and it's better to do where you feel your probability might be lower than average. It's a safe place to try and experiment first, test and learn, right? And learn together with your stakeholder because you might open the eyes of your stakeholder and they realize that actually it's a completely different problem than an L&D problem. It might be a compensation problem. It might be a procedural problem. It might be an equipment problem. It could be lots of other things, you know, that are going on. So I think that that's, that's a pretty important piece around the framework of ROI that I think about. It's sort of, you know, how do we define success? Okay, let's do this. And now let's make sure that we're actually seeing that success or what that success looks like on the back end. And some of the, sometimes that's ROI and sometimes that's just, you know, ROE, which I call return on expectations, right? Which is really that we're clear on what it is we expect to happen after we do something. So I think that that's, that's how I think about ROI. I think that that's a surefire way to never be sitting in a meeting with an executive team and have somebody say to you, that's all great, but what's the ROI on that? Which is code for saying, I don't see that adds any value to the business. And yeah. two things happen when that happens, because someone will always do that anyway. Your stakeholder will speak up and answer the question for you, right? Mm-hmm. Which is always good. Or you have a lot of ammunition by saying, well, these are the success measures that we defined up front. And here's what we see on the back end, right? And that usually shuts it down. So you can handle those the skeptics questions pretty easily without having to hire Accenture or some professional services firm to do some complicated ROI for you. Because sometimes you don't need that. Most times, very few times you actually need that. Interesting, interesting. And, and I'm very intrigued by your value-based and solution-oriented approach where you reverse engineer and work your way to that. So yeah, but, but I also wanted to ask you, what are the common barriers you see in you know adopting new L&D strategies within these organizations and how do you overcome these challenges? Well, I think the biggest barrier most L&D organizations 
space around new strategies is a business case, right? Being able to really articulate the answer to the question, why? So I, I, I think that, you know, I'd say that that has been, that is where a lot of organizations and myself included in the past have gotten a bit tripped up by not really being able to articulate with clarity in a way that people can understand and embrace the why behind a change in direction on LMD strategy. And, and I would say even the rationale for investing in a particular place in L is the same thing, right? So having the real the real answer to the why in a way that connects with what's valued in the business and what's important to the business, right? So yeah. I, I, I can talk about leadership development and how that's going to help us have better leaders, more engaged employees, and people are going to be happier and feel like they're developed. But if all anybody cares about right, right now is driving sales, I'm wasting my time, right? So I need to be talking about what's driving sales. And I need to be talking about what I'm doing to help drive sales. And if leadership development is a way to help you drive sales and I can make a credible link to that, great. But you've got to be able to sit there and have it. So I think that that's one of the biggest challenges in L&D right now. I think one of the things I saw in three budget cycle with a lot of companies is sort of a reconciliation of the investments made during COVID. And so budgets this year, people will tell you, are much tighter than in previous years, which I think is really sort of back to... We forget what it was like in 2018, but I think it's back to sort of pre-COVID mindset around investments in L&D. And that can feel very challenging because some of that is shutting down what you've done over the last couple of years because some of it, frankly, was impulsive, right? Like we just need, yeah. you know, we need training programs so people have something to do while they're working from home, right? <laughs> or, you know, or whatever it might be and all super well-intentioned for the moment, but their moment has come and gone. And so now as the L&D leader, we get attached to these things. And, and I think that you have to sit there and say, like, it's probably not driving the value that we could. And we could probably spend that money better somewhere else to drive sales or, you know, attack some organizational issue that we're seeing right now. And so I think I think that that is also, you know, makes it a pretty challenging environment. I think that's also fairly disruptive because anytime you have programs like that, you have people on your team associated with those programs. And when you shut them down, you're like, OK, so what am I going to do? right? What's my next project? And I think it's a lot of navigation around change to be able to do that. That's what uh, I'd say. No, I, I absolutely agree. And when you were talking about the why, I feel storytelling is something which is really important for, the, for that so that people know why program is important. But, but yes, really, really appreciate the insight that you provided on how you are approaching some of these problems. Now, yeah, timing, you know, just on timing, timing matters a lot. So I can recall across my career, like super brilliant ideas that people have had on my team and that I've wanted to take forward, but the timing wasn't. And where I've said, hold the thought, <laughs> we want to do this. Now's not the right time, but let's wait for our moment. And it might be a year from now. So let's not just throw the idea away. Let's keep it over on the shelf here for the moment when the organization's ready or the timing's right or the the problem we think that we have is clear to everyone else. And that's a really important piece as well to keep in mind too. Sometimes it's just bad timing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, you need to develop your leaders, but right now we're like worried about existing by selling. So, right, <laughs> now's not the time. So I think that's a really important thing to remember as well from an L&D perspective. And if you miss that, that creates lots of challenges for your team. Indeed, indeed.
And uh, now, given that we are towards the uh, end of our conversation, I just wanted to know, given your diverse experience, if you could leave us with one actionable piece of advice that organizations can implement uh, immediately to make a meaningful impact in their L&D initiatives. Yeah, I think that my experience has been that we struggle in the L&D profession with ending things. So we, we tend to work in a cumulative fashion and we think about we think about building out our program catalog and, you know, and having 10,000 videos in our collection or whatever it might be. So for me, one thing to think about or piece of advice I would be would be like, um, think about what really matters to the people that you're serving more than what really matters to you. And if it doesn't matter to them, but it matters to you, swallow hard and stop it. So curate yourself. I guess would be the best advice I would give. I can, I can think of times in you know organizational change where we've had to cut budgets and those kind of things and restructure teams. And I can remember putting options up where I eliminated my own job, right? Which sounds like a crazy thing to do, but at the same time was acknowledging that that is a viable way to get to the fat, right? Uh, instead of cutting four people, you can get rid of me and those four people can continue to produce. So, so I think recognizing that, you know, sometimes it makes sense to end more things than it does necessarily to build new things can help you really build credibility in the organization that you recognize what works on your team and what doesn't, and that you're willing to shut down things that get kind of old and don't need to be there that were important in a moment, but aren't important anymore. Right. And so that'd be my, I think that's the that's probably the biggest piece of advice I could give people. And I think this is what the sunk cost fallacy is based on, right? That you don't continue to spend effort on something which is not working for you and giving the results that you were expecting. So Exactly. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, there are sunk costs in there and there's a lot of time, energy and effort that you put into bringing something or or sustaining something. But sometimes it's worthwhile to step back and say, why am I doing this? And maybe we should, you know, what if we stop this? Would anyone notice? Is probably a good question to ask. And I believe that any L&D organization can probably find five things in their team that they're doing right now that they could stop and no one would notice. True. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think, pretty much sums, sums it up for us. Fantastic. And this has been really an incredibly insightful conversation, Rob. Your expertise and experiences in L&D have truly shed light on how we can work in the evolving L&D landscape and its impact on organizational success. To our listeners, remember that you can tune into our podcast on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. Simply search for the Digital Adoption Show and hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episode. Listen at your own leisure from any location. This is Mike and Rob signing off. Bye-bye. Thanks.